This is Lilac Wine, the podcast. On our last chapter, Billy took Robert fishing, actually jugging for catfish along the Mississippi River. They talked about fishing. They talked about Missy, the large sturgeon that was named for the town. And they talked about Obelia. And then Robert got some bad news. If you haven't listened to that episode, please do so. I'm releasing this novel in progress one chapter at a time, and I don't want you to miss anything. It was the summer of 1917. As America prepares to shed her blood on a distant shore, two lonely people are brought together by fate, torn apart by war, consecrated by wine. Lilac wine. Lilac Wine. Chapter 23. His pale skin glowed with a soft luminescence in the moonlight. To Robert, Art looked very much asleep, but awkwardly reposed with his hands cupped over his chest in a pine box propped up in the corner of the front parlor. He was dressed in his postal uniform, which the ladies from the community church insisted he wear, even though he hadn't worn the outfit in years. It had numerous stains, and the stitching over the left shoulder was loose. Teddy lay motionless on the floor, surrounded in a sea of flowers his occasional whimper the only sound in the room. Even the clocks, which normally ticked like a beating heart in the night, were silent. The first things the ladies had done when Art's body was brought home was to stop all of the timepieces in the house at 2.15, the time when he was discovered on the floor in the post office, after his heart apparently gave out. Robert sat on a bench in the shadows, not knowing what time it was, but feeling as if the earlier events of the day occurred in another lifetime. He had no idea how long he had been sitting there in the dark. The visitation, no doubt, had ended an hour or two ago, and since Robert was the only remaining relative in town, Reverend Finkel reminded him that it was his duty to stand vigil through the night. Although a couple of the ladies had volunteered to lessen the burden, Robert declined. Don't worry, Reverend Finkel told Robert with a wink. Art won't mind if you close your eyes for a bit. He then stepped outside, placing his hat back upon his head. The ladies from the church buzzed around him like bees as they walked from the house discussing the plans for tomorrow's funeral and reception. Funerals were quick affairs in Lily Springs. The ladies from the church were the ones to typically take care of the arrangements and help grieving families prepare the dead for burial. Reverend Finkel was good at recruiting volunteers, and there was a short list of gravediggers and pallbearers who were often put to work when someone in town passed on. There was no undertaker in town, nor one of those funeral parlors that were popular in larger cities. Internment in the Lily Springs Cemetery occurred usually within 48 hours of death. 
Even with the Sabbath the next day, Reverend Finkel saw no need to wait, as was customary in most towns. We'll commit art to the ground tomorrow and then attend church, he had announced near the end of the visitation. He then had turned to Robert and said, loud enough so that everyone could hear, I hope you will finally join us, Robert. Art was always hoping for your company. Reverend Finkel was famous in town for making people feel guilty when they didn't attend his services. Prior to opening the doors for visitation, John Hickman had set up his camera and, with the help of the ladies, carefully arranged the composition. Flowers were set delicately around the open coffin. They combed Art's hair, groomed his mustache, and attempted to manipulate a slight smile on his rough and weathered countenance. Art rarely smiled in life, so this was a difficult task. "'As long as he looks peaceful,' proclaimed Henrietta Longhorn, who stood in the back directing the other ladies in the busy preparations for the hastily assembled visitation. Henrietta had been friends with Art's wife, Ruth, and had helped Art with the arrangements for her funeral many years ago. On the day of visitation, Ruth was dressed in her finest gown and propped up on the couch in the front parlor. Art sat next to her, tenderly holding her hand while John took the picture. Robert respectfully declined John's request to stand next to the casket and cast a mournful eye down upon its contents. He didn't quite understand Memento Mori. Images of death haunted his dreams at night, and he didn't need such reminders during the day. When Robert was a child, Abigail DeWitt, the young girl and occasional playmate who lived next door, died at the tender age of seven, the victim of typhoid fever. Robert watched from an outside window as the family made preparations for her funeral. A post-mortem photographer was hired, and Abigail's little body was made to sit on her favorite wooden horse through the use of hidden stands and wires. Watching the man work on young Abigail's remains reminded Robert of a puppeteer. After she was posed properly on her horse, pupils were painted on her closed eyelids, giving her the appearance of life. Her parents then sat next to her in solemnity as the photographer took their picture. Robert's mother had found him staring at the scene and pulled him aside. It's best we remember the dead as they were in life. Memories are better than any picture, she told him. We always carry people here, she added, tapping his chest with her finger, in our hearts where they remain forever. Although he had been to many wakes and funerals in his life, his mother was adamantly opposed to such displays of mourning. She had forbidden any type of photography at his father's funeral and had moved the visitation to the Schaefer Brothers' funeral parlor on Maple Avenue. This riled Uncle Henry, who had two visitations in his own house for daughters who died in infancy and had photographs of them taken, lying as if asleep in Aunt Carol's arms. Mary Bishop stoically weathered Henry's scorn, but refused to make any compromises to the funeral arrangements. As per her final wishes, no photography was allowed at her funeral either, and Robert insisted that it be held in the same establishment as his father's service. As long as Robert had lived in the house in Evanston, his mother kept the front parlor bright and airy. 
The family would sometimes sit there and play on the floor, unlike what occurred in most front parlors, which were often kept cold, dark, and vacant. When Ladies Home Journal suggested in 1910 that the front parlor be changed from a death room to a living room, Mary proudly told her son that that had been her idea, sent to the editors of the magazine many years prior. Whether that was true or not, Robert had no idea, but he liked to think it was true, and the thought of his mother brought a tender longing in his heart for family. He had tried to telephone Uncle Henry, but there was no answer at the house. Robert knew that he was in Buffalo visiting Maggie and her husband, but he had no way of making contact. He wondered when he would get the chance to see him again. Very few relatives remain now, especially on the bishop's side of the family. As far as he knew, only he and Uncle Henry remained to carry on the bishop name. And Uncle Henry had only one living daughter, so now carrying on the family name was his sole responsibility. If only he had had a brother, as he had wished for many times in his youth, he wouldn't feel so burdened. However, Mary Bishop almost died giving birth to him and having another child was something that could never happen again, and he knew that his mother mourned the children that were never meant to be. Robert was destined to be an only child, and only children have special responsibilities and burdens unbeknownst to those with siblings. Robert walked over to the coffin. We bishops are on the verge of extinction, Art, he said out loud, his voice echoing in the silent room. Teddy sat up and nudged his nose against Robert's leg, a soft whimper giving way to the patter of a wagging tail hitting the floor as Robert reached down and gave the dog a tender pat on the head. Robert had been surprised to see that just about the entire town came out for the visitation, even many who lived miles out and had known Art from his days when he worked the rural route. Maggie Churchill had spent a couple of hours at the switchboard making calls. Even without telephone, news travels fast in Lily Springs, and nothing made plans change faster than a funeral. Everyone wore dark clothes of mourning, which they would undoubtedly don tomorrow as well. Most brought flowers of some sort and a sweet smell hung in the air. The largest and most beautiful arrangement came from Abelia, of course. It was an arrangement of yellow lilies in a sea of long, white flowers that looked like trumpets that had been peeled open with a can opener. The flowers emitted a sweet, candy-like smell and were placed at Art's feet. Robert remained in the distant corners of the parlor during the visitation, knowing full well that he knew Art the least of everyone who came that evening. But he watched them as they stepped up to the casket, and each and every one did the same thing. They closed their eyes and inhaled deeply the scent. Not too many people talked to Robert that evening. Most merely offered polite condolences, but he felt that they were given only to satisfy convention. He was an outsider, after all, and didn't doubt that some probably thought he had a small hand in Art's passing. He sure got that sense from Rose, who glared at him upon her arrival. For much of the evening, he felt the accusatory looks and the shakes of heads aimed in his direction. 
Rose quickly found several ladies from the church and talked together in hushed voices, shooting periodic glances to the quiet out-of-towner sitting on the bench in the corner of the room. He felt out of place at the wake. Wearing an old suit found in Art's closet that was not only out of fashion, but several sizes too big. However, he hadn't packed any clothes of mourning when he made the trip to Lily Springs. No one travels expecting a funeral. Most people reminisced about art and exchanged stories, but with Abelia, they simply complimented the flower arrangement with a polite smile and moved to the side. Ellie, of course, offered praise, but tempered it with a complaint that the scent was not appropriate for a wake. It smells a little like the candy in our store, she said, wrinkling her nose a bit. The fragrance will grow stronger throughout the night, Abelia replied. Just wait until tomorrow. It may just smell a little bit like a candy factory in here. And with that, she shot a sympathetic glance to Robert as if acknowledging the duty that he was to perform that evening. And Robert felt in that instant that perhaps the flowers were also meant for him. Abelia eventually wandered to the back of the room and sat on the bench next to Robert, who had moved over to offer her a seat. They sat for several minutes in silence, and it was the most comfortable he had felt all evening. Perhaps Abelia was right, thought Robert that much of the scorn and judgment were mere products of his imagination. I'm glad you're here, he finally said. It's strange. I didn't see this coming. Abelia furrowed her eyebrow. Nobody expects something like this. Robert traced a vein in the wood floor with the heel of his shoe, wanting so much to tell her about his dreams, about his burden. He wanted to explain what had happened the other day at the picnic. He wanted to tell her about the old German soldier with the pleading look in his face and why he couldn't comprehend the fact that he knew more about that man's last moments than his own family member laying just a few steps away. Instead, he changed the subject. Did you get the package I left on your porch? Abelia nodded. I assume there were phonograph records, he added. I tried to keep them out of the sun. Thank you. They were records. My father had a Victrola he would play every evening in our front room. Sometimes I really miss that old thing. He loved Billy Murray, and I remember him singing a song to me about a coconut tree. Abelia chuckled. I have that one. She then leaned a little closer to Robert and sang softly. Though I am king of the coconut grove, I'm lonely. Sweet little chimpanzee, I love you only. Though you are only sweet sixteen, I want you to be my baboon queen, Robert sang along. If you agree, you can rule with me high in the coconut tree. They both let out a soft laugh, but simultaneously stifled it when they remembered that they were at a wake after all. Rose, who stood several feet away talking with Beatrice Carter, looked in their direction and there was no mistaking the scorn in her eyes that time. Wakes were no time for merriment. That was a couple of hours ago. And standing over Art's coffin, the melody for Up in the Coconut Tree played softly in his head. He closed his eyes and inhaled deeply like he had seen so many others do that evening. The flowers were fragrant. 
he detected a hint of vanilla, perhaps a trace of cherry or licorice. He wasn't sure. It did smell a bit like candy. Before leaving, Abelia told him that the white flowers were called Nicotiana alata. A member of the tobacco family, actually. Not too different than what goes in your cigarette, she said. I like those flowers. They can help calm the mind. But Robert's mind was anything but calm. Alone in the parlor, he couldn't help but think about why he hadn't seen it coming. He often knew specific details about the tragedies that befell complete strangers, but rarely did he see anything regarding those he knew in his own life. But what could he have done if he had known? That has been the question since he began recognizing the significance of his dreams. He often wondered if it were possible to change fate. If only he could just piece together the images. He thought again of the German soldier. He hadn't had a dream since the very weird incident a few days ago at the picnic. Who was he? Why did he keep seeing the same man over and over? After removing the package of cigarettes from his pocket, Robert took off his oversized jacket and threw it on top of a chair. He stepped outside into the moonlight. Teddy refused to budge and with a single whimper laid back down on the floor. Teddy was particularly loyal, unlike the others in the pack. They slept soundly in the backyard, oblivious to what had gone on during the day. Robert struck a match against the fence post and lit his cigarette, the moonlight glittering off the smoke that swirled around his head. He had heard that Owen was going to take over at the post office and wondered what was going to become of Art's house and dogs. Art had no children. There were no relatives living in Lily Springs, except for him, that is, and there was no way he was going to stay. There was absolutely nothing for him here. As he let go a breath of smoke into the night air, he heard it. Music. It was soft, barely a flutter over the crickets and katydids, the rhythmic sound of strings punctuated by the tone of a deftly played xylophone was unmistakable. It was the popular My Regards Waltz that he had heard so many times before, only this time the creatures of the darkness added their own voices to each note of the xylophone, creating a cacophony of music that strangely seemed almost a natural part of the night. Robert knew this song well. In 1912, his mother had forced him to attend the end-of-the-year card and dance party at Lincoln School. He had watched with amusement as a young man attempted to knock out the tune on a xylophone that was clearly too cumbersome for his ability. Nonetheless, the crowd had admired the attempt, and Robert Bishop danced a waltz with his mother for the very last time. Robert was drawn to the music. He knew instinctively where it was coming from and soon found himself strolling toward River Road and the last house in Lily Springs. The music grew louder as he made his approach, the heels of his shoes crunching the gravel under his feet in rhythmic synchronization with the beat, his arms swinging with the melody. And when the music stopped, he stopped. The tone arm was lifted and Robert waited for what was going to come next. He stood silently in the middle of the street and inhaled the last of his cigarette, casting the butt to the ground. 
Crickets chirped applause. Bats fluttered almost silently overhead. The cranking of the gear signaled a new song. The platter clicked softly as it rotated up to speed, but was soon drowned out by the crackle of the needle placed gently on the worn surface of the disc. The first notes of a piano immediately brought a smile to Robert's face. It was the tune he had mere moments ago been singing in his head, a song he had forgotten about until Abelia had sparked that memory at the wake and one he had heard so many times in his front parlor, a song he had danced hand-in-hand numerous times with his parents, circling the wood floor until he was dizzy and winded. The voice of the great tenor Billy Murray cut through the night, and Robert found himself silently singing along. Pink babble in a coconut dream Grew lonesome day by day He longed for a maid to share his fate Mid the grove where he held full sway So he spied a little chimpanzee Who made a horror home in a nearby tree And that same night, when the moon shone bright, he sang with all his might. Billy Murray's voice was commonplace in the Bishop household, particularly in the evening as William read the newspaper with young Robert sitting on his lap. The day after his father died, Robert played those records over and over again, refusing sleep and sustenance until his mother gently picked him up and held him as he sobbed into the fabric of her dress. Keep on smiling, echoing mournfully from the horn of the family's Victrola. Billy Murray was known more for his playful, comedic songs, and the song that was now emanating from Abelia's backyard was one of William's favorites. He often referred to Mary as his little chimpanzee and hummed the tune while tucking Robert into bed at night. Good night, my little baboon, he would say as he gently stroked his forehead before turning out the light for the evening. Oh, I am king of the coconut grove, I'm lonely. Sweet little chimpanzee, I love you only. Though you are only sweet sixteen, I want you to be my baboon queen. If you'll agree, you can rule with me. Robert crept silently through Abelia's side yard and stood near the garden gate. He pushed aside a string of ivy and gazed upon the porch. Abelia was nestled comfortably at the table, a glass of crimson liquid resting by her elbow. Her fingers curled a few strands of hair that hung loosely aside her face, the bun that she normally wore undone for the evening. Her hair touched her shoulders, and her face radiated the soft glow from a lantern that sat in the middle of the table. Insects fluttered around the orb like frenzied planets around a distant sun. Her eyes were closed, and the subtle smile on her face reminded him of the Mona Lisa. Only from pictures did he know of the famous painting, which gained popularity since being stolen a few years back. But Abelia's resemblance to the famous painting ended there, Robert never thought the woman in da Vinci's painting to be particularly attractive and openly wondered why there was such a fuss when it was stolen from a Paris museum. A chimpanzee was a clever coquette Well-versed in a worldly way He thought she would hold 
the king so bold At a feast for days and days But the wise baboon got busy soon For on that night by the light of the moon He swung along and carried her off As he sang in accents Gazing on Abelia that evening, Robert was struck by just how beautiful she was. He knew then and there that he had always thought so from the moment he had first seen her in the garden, gracefully strolling among the plants and butterflies. He now acknowledged to himself that Billy's insinuations had been true. Only he was never going to admit that to Billy and had been unwilling to admit it to himself. All that mattered was that when he was with her, he felt better. When he thought of her, he forgot everything else. Although he felt somewhat embarrassed for spying on her through the ivy, he couldn't move. He studied the camber of her lips, which glistened in the light as they parted ever so slightly, partially forming the words of the song she sang silently. He traced the curve of her neck, down to the unbuttoned collar of her blouse, her breast rising gently with every breath. He wanted nothing more in that moment than to throw back the ivy curtain and sit with her in the glow of the lantern. The evening that began with death was ending with a feeling of life that Robert had never felt before. He felt it in every pound of his heart, in the pulsating of his temples, in the warmth of his core. I am king of the coconut grove, I'm lonely. Sweet little chimpanzee, I love you only. Though you are only sweet sixteen, I want you to be my baboon queen. If you'll agree, you can rule with me. High up in the coconut tree. The song had ended, and neither of them moved as the needle sought a groove skipping and bumping against the paper label in the center of the disc, sending loud, obnoxious crackles into the night. Little did either of them know that each was, at that moment, thinking of the other. Time could have stopped, the world could have ended, but they would not have noticed, for time shared in mutual contemplation moves at a slower pace. Only the voice of Rose, cutting through the night, wretched both Robert and Abelia back to the present. Shouting out an apology to Rose, who was undoubtedly sitting near her open window, Abelia quickly silenced the static by lifting the needle from the platter. Upon hearing the voice from above, Robert sunk further into the ivy, suddenly self-conscious of the fact that he was lurking in the shadows. Only when he was sure that no one had seen him did he emerge from the foliage tiptoeing quietly between the houses, afraid to look back. The music of Ave Maria accompanied him through the night as he made his way back home to the quiet of a house draped in mourning, but a heart that was full of longing and uncertainty for what it had recently discovered.
So that was chapter 23. And um, it's a chapter that I'm really proud of. Um, it, this is a very rough, <laughs> rough cut of a novel in progress, I know. But uh, this this one, uh, this chapter, I, I just really like how it came together. There's lots of history here, and I knew that when I first started writing this and put Robert in Lily Springs, I knew that somebody had to die and that somebody had to be connected to Robert because there's going to be forces now that are going to push him out of Lily Springs and Abelia is going to have to, you know, make a choice. And, uh, and I knew it had to be art. You know, Robert is alone. I mean, literally alone now. And uh, when I started writing this, um, I had to review and look at and try to understand death rituals at that time in history. And being a small town, I really tried to compose Lily Springs as being caught in the past and between the past and the modern age. And so back in the Victorian age, since the introduction of photography and embalming, mortuary photography or post-mortem photography was an actual thing. And families who, who, who didn't have a whole lot of money would save money and use their savings to hire a photographer to take a picture of their loved ones. A lot of times it's children. And, you know, children often died in infancy. And so there are pictures and they're heartbreaking pictures of kids being held by their parents and, the, you know, the children are are dead. And this was a thing. And Lily Springs being kind of still in the 19th century, I knew had to, had to do that. And I needed to put in that transition too with, uh, you know, with Robert and, you know, funeral homes become a thing at the turn of the century. And so we get this kind of change. If you're interested in this concept, it, it, it's morbid, but it's also very, very fascinating. I wrote up a little article a, uh, well, many years ago now. I wrote it up way back in 2012, and I called the article A Death in Lily Springs, Turn of the 20th Century Funeral Practices. I am republishing that on our website, lilacwinenovel.com, and it's in the post that has this episode, so you can read it. There are pictures there, so you can see some of the pictures, and you can see the picture that inspired the memory that Robert had of his neighbor, a young girl who had died, and he's watching in the window as the photographer is getting, you know, you know, the body ready and painting on her eyelids and the whole thing. That picture is up as well. So there's lots of history in this, uh, this episode, this chapter for sure. And we get to listen to the great Billy Murray. Billy Murray, 
Uh, I have a few of his early albums, and I'm still waiting. I just got a Victrola this summer, and I had to send out the motor. There was a spring that was broken, so I sent it out to the Victrola doctor out in Michigan, and I'm getting it back this week. So I have many Billy Murray discs, and so I'm looking forward to uh, to listening to them on an actual machine from you know 1920. So that's going to be kind of cool. And so we listened to Billy Murray there up in the coconut tree, which was a popular song. That's an actual recording from 1902. And I got it out of archive.org. They have a, an archive.org. They have a 78 uh, archive where people upload recordings of their 78s. And, and the thing I, I just really like how this chapter is uh, structured. I hope you do too. It begins with death and it kind of ends with love, where Robert finally acknowledges his feelings and acknowledges that Billy's insinuations were correct. And they, I mean, it's, 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 it's kind of an absurd image, yet it's, it, to me, it's entirely plausible. Him hiding in the ivy, spying on Abelia. She's listening to Billy Murray there in the night. And it's as if just the two of them exist. And then Rose <laughs> kind of destroys it. Uh, but nonetheless, that's what that's what we have there. And so let me know what you think. Um, you can go to lilacwinenovel.com. You can... You know, sign up for our newsletter. You can send me a question, a comment, if you like. Uh, comments at lilacwinenovel.com is our email address. So you can send an email as well. Would love to hear from you. We are on a schedule now of releasing a new chapter every two weeks. It's just getting very difficult for me to, to keep up the weekly schedule that we've had. So we are going to chapter 24 uh, in two weeks, and it's going to be uh, Art's funeral uh, there. And uh, then we just have two more chapters. Yeah. And then we're at the point at which I'm going to have to start <laughs> writing again. And school's going to be starting uh, in just a couple weeks. So this is going to be very interesting. Trying to get back into writing this novel on a, you know, biweekly basis because I finished chapter 26. All right. Or is it chapter 25? I'll, I'll have to look. So we're getting very close here to the end that I'm a little bit worried. I'm a little bit worried because now I have to go into full gear and my plate is pretty full with a lot of things. When work starts again, it's going to get even more difficult. So thank you for kind of sticking with this with me and uh, going on this journey with me. I really, really appreciate it. So until next time, I'm Bruce Janu. See you then.
Lilac Wine is written and produced by me, Bruce David Janu. All content is copyrighted and cannot be used without expressed written permission. The podcast is made under the auspices of Bell Book and Camera Productions, my production company. Visit bellbookcamera.com for more information. If you are liking Lilac Wine, the podcast, please take a moment and visit us online. Connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter as well. Let me know what you think. The intro voiceover was provided by my colleague and friend, Rachel Vissing. All music and sound effects are licensed through audioblocks.com, except for those items that are in the public domain. Please visit lilacwinenovel.com to join the discussion, ask me questions, make comments. The purpose of Lilac Wine, the podcast, is to discuss the creative process. Your comments and suggestions are greatly appreciated. Thank you for listening.